little bit of what we covered last week. If you remember, there was a dialogue. There was an exchange that took place between Yeshua and Hasatan. And within that exchange, we got secret intel. We got to see behind the scenes. We were given a secret intelligence report, if you will, on our adversary. How so? We got to see how he plans to maneuver against us, how he plans to come and attack us. Very, very valuable information. Well, today we're going to continue to build upon that concept even further. And I want to do this by taking you to the book of Isaiah. And there we find there's a situation that unfolds there uh, between King Hezekiah and the king of Assyria. And uh, where we're going to see yet once again the nature of how the devil seeks to gain victory over us. You know, when the plans of the enemy are known, when we see the plans, it gives us supernatural ability. Supernatural ability to actually respond. It's everything. When you think about war, there's a saying, intelligence wins war. Information is what wins war. It's the intelligence reports. Those who have it, these are the ones that come out on top. I want you to think about something, going back to World War II, and I've addressed this. I'm going to bring this back to the table because it applies to what we're talking about today. But in World War II, leading up to World War II, it wasn't even World War II yet, but leading up to World War II, there was a nation that rose to power that frightened people. A nation so powerful, so technologically advanced, so organized, they struck fear in the hearts of the entire world. And that nation was Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany rose to power. They were very powerful. There was no nation on earth that wanted to go head-to-head with Germany. I'll just tell you that right now. They were a super power. What few people realize is There was one particular thing that gave them such success in war that gave them a massive advantage over all the other nations on planet Earth. And it wasn't necessarily uh, their advancement, their technological advancement in their tanks or in their guns or their organization. It was something known as the Enigma. And you have heard me talk about this. The Enigma, it was a code machine. They were the only ones that possessed this. There was, there was different models that businesses used prior to this. But the nation of Germany, they actually made their own version of it. They were the only ones that possessed this, called the Enigma. And what you would do is you would basically type, they would type their plans for war. They, they were free to send their plans out virtually throughout the world, all, to, all over the place, all over Europe, as Germany starting to spread all over Europe, they were free to communicate and express their plans to their generals and lieutenants and so on and so forth. This is what you need to do. This is who you need to attack. This is when you need to do it. And guess what? The world never knew what was coming. They never knew what to expect from them because they couldn't get any intelligence from them. They had no ability. The, the, the enigma was thought to be uncrackable. You could not crack this. I want you to understand something. One of the primary reasons the tides turn, the tide turns in, in, in World War II, where Germany started to go on the back, the primary thing was British intelligence cracked the enigma. They cracked the enigma, and they started these, these you know, the, the, Germany had, a, had, had one machine for their, their army. They had another, even more complex machine for their navy. 
So these U-boats that were running around the scene, we, never, we didn't know where they were. The Allied forces had no clue what was coming until their ships sank. They started to sink. It would just hit them. They were all over the place. We could not find them. Then, when British intelligence cracked it, then they started to see the plans. They started to see. They started to know where their U-boats were. They could find them. They were forcing them to the surface. They were sinking them. They were getting ahead of the German army. They knew what's coming. And the point being is, is when you know the adversary's plans, you can prepare and it will turn the tide in war. And this means everything to us. That's why as we go through Scripture, I go from story to story to story. We are cracking the code. We are cracking the enigma. We are getting to know how Satan is going to move against us. It doesn't get more valuable than that. And the key to it is Scripture. These stories that we study. You're going to get a taste of that today as well. Not just from last week, but today when we look at the story between Hezekiah and the king of Assyria. I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 36, verse 1. Let's get right into it. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. And I want to just stop here. Put this in context. We're in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Understand, something monumental happened in the sixth year of King Hezekiah. About eight years, maybe argumentatively nine years earlier, something happened. What was that? The king of Assyria took Israel captive. This is 721 BC. King of, the king of Assyria just plucked Israel up and took her out of her land. So that happened in the sixth year of Hezekiah. Now here we are in the 14th year of Hezekiah. And what does it say? That Sennacherib, or we would say Sennacherib in English, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Moving on to verse 2. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rav Shakeh. Now keep in mind, this is not his name. This is a title. This is the prince of Assyria. You'd think of him kind of like a, I guess a modern-day expression would be a five-star general uh, or a, a high-ranking governor a representative, a direct representative of the king. So here, the king of Assyria, he sends the Rav Shakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Now, there's some history here uh, between Assyria and Judah, history that is worth mentioning so that you understand why the king of Assyria has risen up uh, against King Hezekiah. And this history goes back to Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. See, when Ahaz was king, the relationship between Israel, considered the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, was not great. And Israel actually rose up to go to war with Judah, but he didn't do it alone. He went and grabbed the king of Syria, not Assyria, the king of Syria, and went to go attack Judah. Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, he freaks out a little bit, and he runs to the king of Assyria, and pleads for help, and he literally empties out the wealth of the temple, the wealth of his own house, to get to, to, to entice the king of Assyria. The, the king of Assyria, he bites. He comes, and he actually repels Israel in Syria. So that component worked. So there, there's some history here. But King Ahaz was a very wicked king. He was nothing like his son, Hezekiah. When Hezekiah came to power, he started to change everything, how everything was done in Judah. He wanted to put the nation back on track with God. He went throughout the land and tore down the high places that had been erected. 
We're only supposed to worship the Lord thy God in the city of Jerusalem at the temple. But they had, throughout Judea, they had erected all these high places. Hezekiah tore them down. Okay? Now, as you look at what's happening here, here we have the king of Assyria. He's coming and attacking Hezekiah. Well, understand something. When his father Ahaz had paid him off, he created a relationship that was not good. The king of Assyria thought, this is going to continue. My leverage over Judah is going to continue. It's kind of a mobster mentality. You just pay me. I'll take care of you. You're going to continue to pay me. But Hezekiah, you rebelled. This is where the problem comes in. This is where it brings us to right here. King Hezekiah is like, no, I'm done with that. I've torn down the high places. I'm getting Judah back on track. We're not going to be subject to you. Well, then the king of Assyria comes out against the fortified cities of Judah and starts taking them down. King Hezekiah freaks out, and he tries to pay him off again. This is, and it's not recorded here, we're not going to cover it, but if you go to 2 Kings, you read it, where King Hezekiah does what his father did. He depletes the temple, even strips the gold off the doors of the temple to pay him off and said, oh no, I should have done this. I'll pay you whatever you want, you know, just go. Well, now the king of Syria is not going to turn away. And so this brings us up to speed as we come to verse 3. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shevna the scribe, and Yoach, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Now keep in mind, these men, Eliakim, Shevna, and Yoach, these men are the king's men, King Hezekiah's trusted men. They are high-ranking officials in his kingdom. And they are very wise. You're going to see this as we continue, but they're very, very wise, God-fearing men. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? Moving on to verse 5. I say, now listen to this, you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? I got to tell you something. When I read these words, you read these words, you feel darkness coming out from them. It's like I'm listening to Adolf Hitler. These words are filled with darkness, with wickedness. These are the words of the devil himself. I want you to think about what's actually being said here and ask yourself, has the devil ever come to you and spoken to your heart, whispered in your ear that, oh, you speak of having plans and power for war, okay? You speak of having plans and power against me. Yeah, you say your faith is powerful. You say that you have uh, this, this undeniable faith in Yeshua and through his name you have the power to wage war against me. But then he tells you, that's just mere words. It's just mere words. This is exactly how the devil is going to come at us. Take it to the bank. He's going to come at us in this way. He loves to tell you, you can never be healed. Didn't you hear what the doctor said? You have an incurable disease. You have stage four cancer. There's no hope for you. Yet you can cry out to Jesus. You can cry out to Yeshua. But it's just words. There's no real power. He tells people there's no hope for them in their marriage. That their spouse is too far gone. He whispers into your heart. He whispers into your ear. It can't happen. You, you, you may pray, but you know. You know those are just words. There's no real power. He tells you that don't bother praying for people. Because when you pray, you're just speaking words. There's no effect 
that you're going to make on that person by petitioning the Lord. These are the lies that Satan peddles among us today. And this is exactly, I want you to see this for what it is, this is exactly what the king of Assyria is doing to Hezekiah. It is deeply profound, it is deeply spiritual. I want to warn you, do not underestimate the power or the influence of propaganda in war. A great example is Hitler in World War II. Achieved the inconceivable. Prior to that, inconceivable to go slay over six million Jews in such horrific fashion that you can't even imagine the power of persuasion. He did it through the tongue. It's something that you want to pick up on. It is something that you need to understand just how powerful and what a great effect the adversary can have on you as he whispers his filthy lies into your ears. He's going to run this campaign. Now he goes on and says in verse 6, Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high place and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? Remember, I told you he went out and took down all the high places. It's so crafty how he is slithering through the grass and what he is saying. And he's basically he's coming out. He said, well, but he's actually torn down the altars. He's torn down all these things and said to Yehuda and Yerushalayim, you shall worship before this altar. He's trying to cry foul. He's trying to discredit Hezekiah's righteousness. This is, I mean, this is absolutely amazing. The further we get into this, the more mind-blowing the deception gets. Moving on to verse 8. Now, therefore, listen to this. I urge you to give pledge to my master, the king of Assyria. You want to know what it's all about? There it is. He wants pledge. Hasatan, Satan, wants us to pledge our allegiance to him. This is what he's after. Remember that dialogue between Yeshua and Satan last week? All these things I will give to you if you will just bow down and worship me. In other words, give me pledge and I will pay handsomely for it. Well, isn't that fascinating? Very same thing that we've seen happen there is now happening here because look at the very next thing that he says. So I urge you, give this pledge. And then he goes on and says, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. Isn't that interesting? He is willing to pay for the pledge. He is willing to give you the desires of your heart. Without question. But know this, in the end, you'll be cutting the check. It'll come at the expense of your soul. How then will you repel, moving on to verse 9, how then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? So basically, the Rav Shakeh is telling Hezekiah and his men, you do not have the power to overcome me. You do not stand a chance. Your only option here is surrender. Now, as we continue in the passage, you're going to see just how persuasive and to what depths the enemy is willing to go to ensure victory, to ensure that we surrender. Look at what he says next. Have I now come up without the Lord? I want to stop right there. Have I now come up without the Lord? 
When you go to the Hebrew, this is not Molech. This is not Baal. This is not Asherah. This is not Nehushtan. These are any of the false gods that Scripture mentions. It's yod heh vav Yehovah. Here you have the Rabshah king. It's coming. Have I come here without the Lord? And then, then he goes, without the Lord, against this land to destroy it. Then he says this. The Lord, Yehovah, said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. You want to talk about the power of persuasion. It doesn't get scarier than this. The fact that Satan is willing to come to us, and pun intended, the fact that he's willing to come to us in this light, that is frightening. Last week we discovered that Satan was willing to use Scripture against us. Well, now we see it's not just that. He's coming to us in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And we as believers, we need to be looking out for this kind of activity. We're demonic hosts of wickedness. They're coming forth, masquerading as ministers of the Lord, whispering into your ears that they are come to impart the will of God to you, that they have come to impart truth to you. How scary is that? Just let that sink down and go, this is, this, it is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. The Apostle Paul captures the whole concept well, something I mentioned briefly last week. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Do you understand? The wolves in sheep's clothing, they don't go around telling you about Buddha or talking about Allah. They go around proclaiming Jesus, Yeshua, that they are his followers and that that they are our brethren or our sisters. This is what they do. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Notice it's not ministers of, of immorality. They're coming as ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Remember something I mentioned about war. There are double agents. There are double agents in our war. In the art of spiritual warfare, there are double agents. And they are going to attempt to seduce us, to get us to succumb to the will of Satan. And this is so horrifying, all while using the holy name of Yeshua. All under the guise of Yeshua to disarm you. This is a real threat, no matter how hard it is for you to believe. The threat is real, and the threat is imminent. Which is why, I mean, you look at, why is Paul writing this? Why does Yeshua have to talk about false prophets and warn about it? Why does Peter have to warn about it? Because the threat is real. The threat is going to be among us. We need to expect it. We need to be looking for it. Getting back to our story, Hezekiah's men, they're going to respond now to the Rav Shakeh's message from the king of Assyria. Verse 11, Then Eliakim, Shevna, and Yoach, said to the Rav Shakeh, please speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it. Now, I do want to stop here and point out something. These men of Hezekiah are awesome. These men are wise. They are what you would call watchmen on the wall. That's who these men are. They are watchmen on the wall, and they are moving craftily. And you'll see in a moment. Now, they asked the Rav Shakeh, 
speak to us in Aramaic. Now, for those of you who don't know, Aramaic was the diplomatic language of the Near East at the time. Okay? But it was not the common tongue of the Jew. The common tongue of the Jew, the common Jew living in Judea, they spoke Hebrew. Not everyone spoke Aramaic at this time. The, 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 the context, the text proves this. Certain people would, of course, have to speak Aramaic because of the nation surrounding them, such as Hezekiah's representatives. They're involved in foreign diplomacy, foreign relations. This is, this is, they needed to be bilingual, trilingual, to in effect to be able to cohabitate with, with other nations freely and to be able to trade and do all these things. They needed to be fluent. So here, his men say, they, they tell the Rashakeh, no, 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 stop. They've already heard enough from him. Speak to us in the Aramaic language, for we understand it. And then they say, do not speak to us in the Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Now I ask you, why would these men ask such a petition? Now this is very important, and you understand the art of spiritual warfare. You understand propaganda. They, these watchmen, are not willing to give Satan a platform to speak to the people. Understand something about communities. Watchmen on the wall are to rise up and they are not to give a platform for the evil one to speak into the people. That's one of the main functions of watchmen on a wall. You intercede. You cut the adversary off. And that is exactly what is happening here. We do not give a platform for the enemy to speak. But how does the Rav Shake respond to this request? Well, he doesn't exactly comply. But the Rav Shakeh says, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Now, with all due respect, he seems to kind of be taking a little bit of a tone here. If you notice, he's starting to tell me, we're going to eat and drink our own waste. This, is, this, this whole thing is getting bad. This is where the argument just turns really, really bad. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. So he does not comply because he wants an audience. And he said, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. And this is something you need to understand that Hasatan, who wants an audience, he wants a platform. Why? Because he knows how powerful his tongue is and how infectious it can be and how it spreads like cancer. And the Rabshakeh knows this. He knows this. He wants to stir pandemonium. He wants to stir fear in the hearts of the people. Of course, the watchmen don't want that. Well, this goes on in verse 14. Thus says the king, meaning the king of Syria. This is the words of the Rosh Shakeh. He's going to go into his monologue here. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. See, he wants the people to hear this. For he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So in a very clever fashion, the Rashakeh, he comes forth, he sows doubt among the people, warning them, they cannot let Hezekiah deceive them. They're going to fall. They're going to be destroyed if they allow him to to turn them back to the Lord and say, oh, no, no, the Lord, the Lord will take care of us. Now, you got to remember, the Rashakeh already set this up in a very twisted and perverse fashion. See, he already set it up, said, I am the one who have come in the name of the Lord. I am the one who is doing the will of God. You see the level of deception here? 
it's going to be taken even to the next level as we go on in verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. Over and over and over again, we see this mentality. He is willing to pay for your peace or what he proclaims to you to be peace. He's willing to pay for it. But listen to this next statement. I'll highlight it. And every one of you eat from his own vine and every one of you from his own fig tree. For you to truly appreciate what was just said or how the Jewish people would have heard these words, this statement rang in the ears of the Jewish people. Make no mistake. And why do I say that? Because the very statement was already written down. It had already happened earlier on. Go to 1 Kings chapter 4, and we actually find as Solomon, King Solomon comes to power, something happens in Israel. Total peace and shalom had come. And what does it say? The text explicitly says that Israel and Judah, everyone sat under their vine and under their fig tree. You have received what God has promised. You have received total peace and total shalom. Do not think that this is a coincidence. This essentially is, we're starting to see scripture flying around here, where the Jewish people would have heard this and go, oh, well, we know what that means. We've experienced that. Well, this sounds good. Every man's going to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. That sounds like the words of the Lord. Go to Zechariah 3, and you'll actually find that again, that in the context that in the age to come, when we receive the promise of the living God, we, every man, will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. The tongue of the adversary will have you so twisted and confused, it is mind-blowing. This is why we need to investigate him. That's why we've got to break the code so that we can see him coming. He goes on, And every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern, until I come, now isn't this interesting? Well, it comes with a little hook. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So the entirety of the pitch here is, I will give you what you were promised. You're going to experience peace and shalom. You're just eventually at some point, you're just going to be relocated. You're not going to lose anything. See, that was his pitch to Eve in the garden. You're not going to lose anything. You're only gaining you have only to gain to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Same thing happening here. Just surrender and all will be well. Moving on to verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Moving on to verse 20. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Yerushalayim from my hand? Oh, here comes the ugly head of pride. The very reason he was cast out of heaven. The very reason the adversary was cast out. Sounds a lot like Isaiah 14 where you have somebody exalting his throne above the stars of heaven. Exalting his throne above God. There is no one. Do you see the fear and intimidation that is being sown right now? He's saying there's no one that can deliver you from my hand. I offer you an olive branch. Surrender, and you'll live. 
Otherwise, you have nothing to live for but death. This is the pitch. I'm going to tell you right now, fear, fear is one of the most powerful, the most dangerous, the most effective weapons that we as believers will ever have to combat. Absolutely. It is powerful. Fear is the master controller. If Satan can sow fear into our hearts, whisper fear into our minds, then he, in effect, gains total control over us. I, I like to liken it to wrapping strings around our limb. And then the puppet master takes over. As he sows fear, he is sowing these things around your limbs, and he starts to move you wherever, you want, wherever he wants you to go. Because fear equals control. That's what it equals. Out of all the ways Satan can get to us, fear is the one that I have personally witnessed take more people captive. It's fear. I mean, think about Israel. Let's just look, let's see if you look at scriptural examples. Why did Israel not go up and take the land? Well, they saw the Nephilim. They saw the giants, the descendants of Anak. There's no way they could do it. Satan struck fear in their hearts. It prevented them from obeying God. I want you to think about that. It prevented them from obeying God. Well, we've seen this before. Not just there. What about King Saul? You have to ask the question, why did King Saul disobey? Here you had a king, anointed of God. He prophesied through the Holy Spirit, called to be king over Israel, given all these things, and everything he had was stripped from him. The Holy Spirit was taken from him. His kingship was taken from him. And we were told in Chronicles 17 that the mercy of God was taken from him. All because we would answer because he was disobedient. All because he was disobedient. But I ask you, disobedient was the product of something. Go to the root. What was the root of his disobedience? What led to disobedience? And I'm going to tell you, it was fear. When you think about that, man, it hits you like a ton of bricks. It was fear that led to disobedience. Let me show you just briefly. I want to take you to 1 Samuel. Remember, Saul was commanded, kill everything the Amalekites have, uh, man and beast. Saul doesn't do that. He spares Agag, and then he spares the best of the sheep and the oxen. What Satan came in and whispered in and said, well, this is a good thing. You want to do this because we're going to offer this to the Lord. Well, how does, how does Samuel reply to Saul? Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So how does Saul respond? This is what he says. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I have feared the people. He feared the people. See, that obedience was a product of something else. Saul feared the people. He obeyed their voice. Now, what's the moral here? We need to take something away from this today. Satan is going to try to run the same game against every single one of us to try to control us through fear. You think of all the various fears. I just threw a couple up here just to kind of go through. The fear of death 
or a fear of violence, a fear of illness. You think of the fear of what others think. This is what we would call insecurity. Man, I, I, I've seen so many people suffer so badly from being so insecure where Satan has them so wrapped up in bondage they can't see it. Believers, wrapped in bondage, they become so insecure about themselves that they shy away from the community, that they shy away from participating, that they shy away from others. Well, isn't that interesting? What does Satan want to do? He wants to isolate you. This is his desire. He wants to isolate you. And isn't that amazing? He sows fear and he just pulls the strings. Because fear is control. You think of darkness. People have different fears of the darkness and this could go into demonic forces. We as believers in Yeshua, sons of the living God, we are not to fear these things. We are not to fear the adversary in any way. I'm telling you, if you fear the adversary, this is not good. We are called to fear the Lord God in Him alone. No one else. We are believers in Yeshua. We are to fear nothing. Amen? You have the fear of hunger. The lack of provision. Here's a perfect example of this. God commanded, the fourth commandment is, you shall rest on the Sabbath day. And yet, when an employer calls someone, someone wants to keep the Sabbath, they, they, wanted, they know what God commanded, but they're worried. Where's my provision going to come from? If I don't go into work on Saturday, my boss will fire me. Satan is sowing fear into the hearts of people to prevent them from being obedient. To prevent them from doing what God has called them to do. According to scripture, the Lord said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. See, but Satan just purges that out of your mind and gets you focused on, well, no, if I don't make money, I won't be able to buy, I won't be able to pay my rent. I won't be able to pay make the house payment. Or maybe, could it be this? I won't be able to buy all the materialistic things that my flesh is desiring. You think about these things. You think about the danger of fear. It is frightening. The fear of abandonment. And this is one that I see plaguing people a lot. The fear of being alone. To the point where you can get men or women who, who get in a situation, they're, they're, and rightfully so, they're looking for a companion. I mean, we could give, I could give so many different examples. They're looking for a companion. They can't find one. So you know what they do? They begin to compromise. Well, at the top, originally was, I need a man of God, a man who fears God, nothing's to trump that. Well, I haven't found one like that, so I'm going to scratch that one off the list and we'll just start to compromise. And pretty soon they find somebody that they're unequally yoked with and things go horribly wrong. Fear. It's fear. Sowing fear, prompting us. Remember what I talked about last week? Satan provoking us to come out from the will of God. It's over and over again. He keeps playing these games with us. And it's all up here. It's all up here. He's whispering constantly. This campaign doesn't end. We all have these fears. We all struggle with fear. The difference is, is how do you respond to that fear? Do you give up control or do you take control? To give up control is to surrender. And we're not called to do that. In the 1960s, there was something known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. And where, you know, most of us are familiar with this, Russia 
Uh, they started to move into Cuba, started to move missiles into Cuba. This is not good. It's like some 90 miles off our coast. And we have missiles. We had missiles in strategic locations that could attack Russia very well. I mean, we're at the brink of war. And that was considered, that, that, that was at the brink of World War III. Very, very scary time. Well, at this time, President Kennedy, he, he was president, John F. Kennedy, he was president, and he addressed the nation in the Cuban Missile Crisis speech. And in the speech, he gives an amazing, at the, towards the end, it, he says something that is so profound, something that we need to take away as believers in Yeshua. It was just, it is just so amazing because it's the heart. You're going to witness the heart of a warrior. It is awesome. Look at what he says. The path we have chosen for the present is full of hazards, as all paths are. But it is the one most consistent with our character and courage as a nation and our commitments around the world. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. I want you to think about that. The cost of freedom. You know, I show you these quotes from the Revolutionary War. Nothing changes in war when it comes to freedom and liberty. The cost to walk in freedom, the cost to walk in liberty is high. Yeshua says, Unless you forsake everything you have, you cannot be his disciple. It doesn't get higher than that. The cost of freedom is high. It's amazing. He states here, Americans have always been willing to pay it. And I ask you, are are the Christians, are the believers in Yeshua willing to pay it? And then he goes on and says, one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. What a profound What a heart of a warrior. We will not surrender. We will not submit. I want you to consider every time Satan starts to sow a fear in you where you do not want to do something, rise up and go do it to rebel against him. Rise up and go do it because most likely there is something the Lord wants you to do. Think about it. If Satan's coming at you and sowing fear into your heart, it is for a purpose. It is for his plan. It is for his kingdom. Not for the kingdom of God. You are being prevented from doing something powerful. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, look at these beautiful words. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. Okay, if we follow this to its logical conclusion, and you're dealing with fear in your heart... It's not of God. That isn't from the Lord. It's from the adversary. Just follow it to its logical conclusion. What God has given us is power. No longer. I am free. I am walking in liberty. I am not controlled by fear. I want the power of Yeshua. I want a sound mind. My wife would debate that. I want love. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. What is fear? Just look at what Paul says. It's the spirit of bondage. Be honest with yourself. What fears are controlling you? And then you have to be even more honest with yourselves when you discover the fears that in your life, now you have to admit, I'm in bondage. That's a hard thing. But it's a reality. We need light casting out on darkness. You want to get rid of fear in your life? I mean, there shouldn't be a person in here that wouldn't raise his hands that is struggling with fear. Because every one of us are confronted with fears of some kind. Now, they may be different. 
but we all struggle with fear. To purge out fear, we're given the recipe. We're given the formula. In 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect, fear, but perfect love casts out fear. <laughs> this is scary, okay? So if I have fear, according to Paul, I'm in bondage. Okay, now I read John, and I'm told that if I have fear, I have not been made perfect in love. This is bad. This is really bad. Perfect love will cast out fear. How do you get perfect love? Being in an intimate relationship with Yeshua. There's no other way. That is the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's what we need. We need to get in relationship with you. Quit being seduced by the adversary. Whether it be through immorality, whether the, the pretty lights that he wants to get, whether it's the desires of your heart, or whether it's fear, or whatever it is. We need to get in an intimate relationship. I know for a fact, I can promise you, the closer you get to Yeshua, the fear will leave your body. It's the way it is. His fear will overcome that. The fear you will have of him will trump the fear you have of the world. With that said, I want to take you back to our story and see how Hezekiah and his men respond to the Rashakeh's sowing of fear and attempting to intimidate them. We need to pay close attention. Verse 21, But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, Do not answer them. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shevna the scribe, and Yoach, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rashakeh. Moving on to verse 1. And so it was, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shevna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, or Yeshiahu, the prophet, the son of Amos. So in looking at how Hezekiah responds to the Rashakeh's proclamation, according to in his warning, if you will, the first thing that Hezekiah does when he, when he hears great, what I guess I would call great swelling words of despair, great swelling words of fear, he goes up to the house of the Lord. He goes to meet with God. This is how he responds. But not just that, we also find that he sends his men to Isaiah the prophet. He wants to consult, he wants to bring the prophet Isaiah in on the matter. Well, isn't that fascinating? Because right here, we're given the formula of how we are to respond to the attacks of the adversary. Simple. Drop to your knees, run to the Lord, and then guess what? Go consult the prophets. Go consult the prophets. This is exactly what Hezekiah is doing. You want to talk about wisdom in warfare. Remember, the context here is war. So as men, they go to meet with Isaiah. Hezekiah sends them, they go to meet with the prophet. And the prophet has good news. The prophet sends them back with good word to Hezekiah, telling him, don't be afraid of, of the king of Assyria, because the Lord himself is going to take care of him. And it's amazing, you think about what, what he tells him. When I read this word, Everywhere I see, the Lord, in the end, he is going to take care of us. He's going to take care of the adversary. I've seen it. I've read it. Read Revelation 19. Yeshua has a sword coming out of his mouth, and he is going to strike the nations. The same, same thing is happening here. Well, after Hezekiah receives word from Isaiah, 
he then gets a message from the Rav Shakeh right after this. Rav Shakeh sends a letter to Hezekiah, basically giving the same speech that was given to his representatives, a lot of huffing and puffing, and nobody's going to deliver you from the king of Assyria's hand. Nobody can do that. Uh, don't trust in, in God. He will not help you. So Hezekiah receives this letter from the Rav Shakeh, and what does he do? Dropping down to verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And what does he do? Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Prayed. Prayer is one of the most powerful weapons we have at our disposal. You're going to fight. I'm going to tell you right now. You want to fight in spiritual warfare? You want to rise up against the host of wickedness? you're going to have to learn how to pray. That's not an option. You're going to have to learn how to pray. When righteous men and women go to prayer, I promise you this, mighty things happen. Mighty things happen in the spiritual realm. They they begin to take place. And to help you appreciate what I'm saying to support this, I want to briefly take you to the book of Daniel. And uh, chapter 9 In chapter 9, Daniel offers up one of the most powerful prayers you'll ever read in Scripture. In fact, for me, you know, many of you know I have, it looks real chaotic in my my Bible. It's not. There's organization, and I have notes everywhere. But I've used the book of Daniel, or the the Daniel chapter 9, in that prayer as a central hub to put my prayer notes. There are two areas I've done this. There's actually three, but two main ones. The other one is the prayer of Yeshua where he teaches, his disciples come out, teach us how to pray. Isn't that interesting? I want you to understand something. There's a reason that we say the Lord's Prayer at the end of every one of these spiritual warfares because Yeshua is teaching us how to go to war. We do it every week. We say it every week. If you were wondering, why are we saying the Lord's Prayer? Don't wonder. Because the weapon of our warfare that is so mighty, that is so powerful, is prayer. You need to know how to pray. Well, I want to take you to Daniel chapter 9, and I want to show you what happens when men of God get on their knees. In verse 20, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, verse 21, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, or Gavriel, now keep in mind, this is the same Gabriel that went to Zacharias and told him, you're going to bear a son. You should call his name Yochanan. This is John the Baptist. He should go out and pave the way for the Messiah. It's the same Gabriel that went to Mary and said, you're going to bear a son. You should call his name Yeshua. This is the same man that in the book of Enoch, we are told he's over all of paradise and he's over the Caribbean. You think about this, who this man is. While I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Verse 23. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out. The command, not at the end of his supplication, the man at Daniel's feet, or his knees hit the ground, The minute he opened his mouth to pray, the heavens thundered. The voice of the Lord spoke and said, Go to my servant Daniel. Think about the power of prayer. 
to where we can drop to our knees in the second not at the end of our prayer, that we got to persuade the Lord. But when we drop in humility, the moment we open our mouth, the Lord takes care of it. The Lord moves. The host of heaven starts scrambling because the Lord is giving commands. That, that whole concept is so powerful. Very continuing on into the next chapter, let me build upon this in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself, you want to know how to have power in prayer? Humility. Humility. That's the key. It's humility. Humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come. Because of your words. See, but the Rav Shakeh, oh, he wants to come in. Satan wants to come and tell you, don't bother praying. The things that you say, they're just mere words. It's a lie from the pit of hell. When you drop to your knees in humility, you cry out to God, you turn to him with your whole heart, calling upon the name of Yeshua, from what I read in Scripture, the hosts of heaven start rummaging. They start rambling all over the place. Because the voice of the Lord is speaking. Because of Daniel's words. That's amazing. It says he came because of his words. Think of the power. Think of this beautiful, intimate relationship that you can have with the Lord. That the only reason Gabriel showed up was because of Daniel's request. That puts it on a whole other plateau for me. And looking and understanding the power of prayer, instead of letting Satan tell me all the words you're just saying is blah, blah, blah. You're just going through the motions. you kind of been taught this, and you kind of do this. It's just words. Nothing will come out of your prayer. Well, I assure you, you listen to those words, and nothing will come out of your prayer, if that's what you think. So let's bring this all full circle. When we look at the fact that Hezekiah was being threatened with total destruction, having the Rav Shakeh, attempt to intimidate him, attempt to force him to surrender, Hezekiah didn't cave to the pressure. He didn't surrender. We actually find he went to war. He went to war, he went to his prayer closet, and he fought this battle on his knees. And I'm going to tell you, that's how we need to fight. That's how we need to fight in this war. When you read this story, we're told that this is the exact reason the battle was won. The very reason that an angel went to Daniel is the very reason that Hezekiah won this battle. Look at this in Isaiah 37. Uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 37, 21. That's a good verse. Let's just look at it. I forgot I threw it in here. <laughs> Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing... You will receive. It's interesting, go to John chapter 14. Yeshua says, whatever you ask in my name, it's the power of the name of Yeshua. Whatever you ask in his name, believing, we will receive. For us as a community to transform from the inside and out, you need to believe this. You want for healings to start taking place, for bondages to be broken, for fear to be stripped out of your heart. This is what's got to happen. You've got to believe. You call upon the name of Yeshua and believe. And we will move mountains. Now, let's go and see why Hezekiah's prayer was answered 
In Isaiah 37, 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me. It's that simple. Because you turn to me against Sennacherib, or, uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. Verse 36, you want to see the outcome? Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed the camp of the Syrians, 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were their corpses all dead. This is why we turn to the Lord. This is why we turn to prayer. Because when we turn to prayer, because we pray to him, we will receive victory. But Satan wants to tell you, you don't have time for prayer. You don't make time for prayer. You got to run here, you got to run there. We're going to talk a little bit more about prayer next week. I'm going to fit it in. I got something else I want to address, but we're going to fit it in because I'm not done with prayer. I want to close with this verse. If you were at our annual meeting, you know, you know, this really is the verse that is going to the head, to the top. A verse we should memorize, a verse that we're going to become more well acquainted with as the world starts to deteriorate. Psalm 50 verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. There are three specific things mentioned. When we're in trouble, we call to Yeshua. We call upon him. What is the effect? He will deliver us. And what is going to happen? We're to go out and give him glory. Amen? Shabbat Shalom. Music team can come up. I'm going to close in prayer. Everyone bow your head. Father God, we just give you praise and glory. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to decode the enigma of wickedness and the plans of Hasatan. We thank you for for sending your son, the Messiah Yeshua, to give us life. That when we call upon his name, Father, and we believe, we will have our answers. We will have our petitions so long as we pray according to your will. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, as this last set goes in, this last song goes up, I pray we as a community usher, we move into prayer. That we deal with things, Lord. If we are dealing with fears in our lives, Lord, that are controlling us, Lord, I just pray that you pour out your anointing, the Ruach HaKodesh upon this place, to melt the hearts of people, to purge the fear to purge immorality, to purge idolatry, to purge covetousness with the spirit of love. And this is what we ask for on your holy Shabbat. We just pray these things in the mighty name of Yeshua. We will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight. And we will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. Our our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.